I love that Zoom is now giving you an option to like leave the meeting if you didn't know it was being recorded. I know. It's like, do <laughs> it's, you want to be here? I mean, it's probably a good idea as yeah. opposed to like secret sneaky recording. I guess so. I guess so. Um, okay. Let me give this a shot. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Daniel. Welcome to Unpacking Development, the jargony named podcast where we talk about the jargon we use in development and why it matters. And as always, I'm joined here by my colleague and co-host, Courtney. Hi, everyone. We are so excited to be talking to you today. And Daniel, I think we have a really interesting topic today. A, a tough one, but an interesting one. We wanted to unpack the idea of gender mainstreaming in development. And I say gender mainstreaming, it's had a lot of different terms over time. Mainstreaming, gender inclusivity, transformative gender programming. But basically, we want to talk about how gender and development are working together. Absolutely. And it's such an important topic. We wanted to explore this, but there are a couple of caveats that we should give about this topic. Number one, it's a huge topic. There's a lot to dive into here. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of existing programming and interesting things that are happening in development. There's a lot of conversations around culture and um, just a ton to dig in here. And we are not going to cover all of it. We'll say that right off the bat. We're already thinking about should we record another one to focus on another aspect of gender mainstreaming and development. But um, that's caveat number one. We're not going to cover all of it. Caveat number two, which is really a caveat that we should probably make at every podcast, but I think especially in this one, <laughs> we, we are not experts in this topic. We are not uh, folks who specialize in gender mainstreaming, programming, and development. Um, we have dabbled in it in that it's a part of uh, some of our work, um, but it is mm -hmm. not something that we would call ourselves experts in. There are tons of people who put in a lot of thought and time into this particular topic in development, um, and we owe them a lot of gratitude and a debt in terms of what we've learned so far. But, you know, don't take our word uh, as the, the key knowledge here that you can get. It, it's a discussion about two people that are very interested in this, but not experts. And then finally, there's another caveat. We, you know, we are coming at this, as always, from the perspective of development practitioners and people in the global development field. And that means our own definition of what gender programming in this field looks like is informed by that industry, by that community. And it may be different than, than the definitions of, of gender roles and gender-based uh, uh, policies and rights that other communities share, and that even a lot of the folks that are the quote unquote beneficiaries of these programs or stakeholders in these programs share. And so there's a there's a big bias in, in how we approach it. And I think it's something to say that we're not, you know, we're, we bring our perspective. We're excited to uh, bring on somebody who can provide us with a different perspective in our, in our interview, which we'll tell you more about in a little bit. But again, you know, excuses for having our particular perspective. We're open to all ideas, but we're coming at it from, from our own viewpoint. So those are our caveats. Seems like a lot of them. We always like to frame our conversation so that you know where we're coming from. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Daniel. And I think, as you said, we could say that for pretty much everything we're talking about. But I think, you know, especially a topic like this, it's so important. There's so many perspectives. And so we just want to make sure that as we're digging into this further, you understand as our listeners that while we are hope that we're getting the facts right, we also recognize that there's a lot further you can go into every single one of these topics. And we would definitely encourage you to. What we thought we would do this time is a little bit different than I think our normal format. Because this is such a big topic, what we decided to do was to start with a little bit of the history, because we do think that it's important to have that background mm-hmm. of kind of how did gender come into the development space? What were some of the key milestones? And then what we really want to get into, because it does feel like a place that we can talk a little bit more towards, is where does that leave us today? Because while we would like to believe that the trajectory of um, gender in development has continued to improve over time, I think, as we might expect, there's definitely some dips and peaks. And I think it's important to look at those. I think, you know, preview and spoiler alert, we're in a little bit of a valley right now in a lot of ways. So Mm. it's important moment to look at this and say, well, why are we here and what can we do about that? So let's dive into the history. And I am going to keep this really, really, really simple. So there are a lot of different ways to break down how gender came into development, but I am going to focus on four moments in time. I'm going to start back at the start of civilization. Uh, Just kidding. Um, (laughs) What I'm actually going to start at is back in 1975. So this first almost oh, start of civilization. Yes. <laughs> For us, we're we're aging, but that is actually, I think, before both of our civilizations. Um, yes, it is. So starting back in 1975, this is kind of this first moment, which we'll call before Beijing, which a lot of you may know about already, but you'll understand in just a few minutes. So in 1975, the United Nations organized this first world conference on women. This was really the first of its kind. There was certainly um, a lot of work before that on gender issues and development, but this was the first time that the UN came together and said, we want to bring in as many countries as possible. We want to sit around the table and we want to make some decisions about where countries stand on gender rights. So this first conference took place in Mexico in 1975. After that, there were several more at sort of five-year intervals, uh, Copenhagen in 1980, Nairobi in 85. And the first conference had 133 countries at the table. And it coincided with the International Year of the Woman. So this was something that people said, okay, this is a good moment to have this discussion. To Daniel's earlier caveat about cultural differences in terms of how we think of gender and the importance of gender, you know, 133 countries, that was not all of the countries that were at the table. So even at that Mm -hmm. point, you could see that there were probably going to be differences in terms of where people stood in terms of gender rights. So fast forward to our second milestone, which is Beijing. 
Beijing was the fourth of these UN conferences, took place in 1995. And for various reasons, which we won't go into right now, this ended up being the really, really big event. Um, It was the largest showing of any of these conferences. Um, 189 countries were represented. It had big names. You might remember the name Hillary Clinton. Daniel, does that sound familiar? Okay. Yep. Heard of her. Yep, Yep. exactly. Mm -hmm. So Hillary Clinton gave a big speech at that time. She was the first lady in the U.S. A lot of big names, um, big anniversary, 20th anniversary of this first conference. And as a part of this, the big thing that came out of Beijing was the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action. And this was this agenda that 189 countries unanimously decided to set forth for women's empowerment. It was considered to be this really key global policy document on gender equality. So Beijing is really seen as this major turning point in terms of Hmm. gender programming and gender and development and how the world really tries to push forward and advocate for equal rights for women. So let's get to the third milestone or the third period. It's not really a milestone, but I think it's the period that leads right up to where we are now. And that is the MDGs and the SDGs. So the Millennial Development Goals, Sustainable Development Goals, probably a lot of people listening are familiar with them. So again, we won't talk about all of these, but with both the MDGs and the SDGs, gender really made it into these discussions of not just what we want to achieve in development, but how we're going to assess it. And in particular, a lot of these goals had really specific gender components. They were talking about the number of women or the percentage of women that they wanted to ensure had access to maternal and newborn health care. They were talking about the number of girls in school. And so it was this moment that the entire field came together and said, okay, we not only want to make gender a priority, we're going to talk about very specific and very actionable goals for how we get there. Courtney, I have a question about that. One of the things that might not be common knowledge for our listeners or maybe to folks in the industry, we've been talking about, and the title of the episode is about gender and gender mainstreaming, right? Really, when we're talking about gender mainstreaming, for the most part, we're talking about women. We're talking about goals and and rights for women, at least in our industry. Is that right? Is that, has that evolved at all over time in that, or does that seem to be the case from the beginning? Yes. So again, I would put the caveat in here. I am not an expert on this, but based on, you know, the work that I've done, and I'm sure you can reflect on this as well. While I think in a lot of different places around the world and in a lot of different industries, gender is starting to mean something more than just women's rights or men and women as a binary in development, it really does still mean women's rights. You're starting to see okay. some really fantastic organizations and programs that are focused on um, gender nonconforming people, um, people that fit into the LGBTQIA plus uh, community. And so you're starting to see that change a little bit. But the truth is, at least based on the experience I've had as sort of a semi-connected member of this space, um, I would say that generally when we talk about gender, and we probably should have started by mentioning this, we're talking about gender and development, we're talking about women's rights and development. 
So that gets us to where we are today, with it, which is this fourth moment that, that I wanted to talk about. We're still working towards the Millennium Development Goals, but we're in this interesting moment, especially for a lot of reasons, but I think one of the ones that's most kind of front of people's minds is the pandemic. What the last 18 months have really demonstrated by a lot of different measures is that that progress, that progress on uh, women's rights and gender equality and inclusivity, some of that has stood up, but a lot of those pieces are really, really fragile. And I think that's Mm. important to acknowledge. So I won't go into all the statistics. This is a place where I'll say, if you're interested in learning more, there's some fantastic report from the UN, from groups that are working on the sustainable development goals. There's a number of reports recently that have looked at where we stand in 2020. And I think across the board, where there's data, the data is really concerning. Um, there's mm. been a lot of backsliding in terms of women's access to healthcare, in terms of how women have fared in the pandemic. And the truth is we're seeing this everywhere. It's not just yeah. in low and middle income countries. You know, we've had debates about this in the US and women Absolutely. taking on the brunt of childcare and things like that. But it's definitely been exasper- exacerbated in, in um, low and middle income countries in particular. Gates Foundation puts out this annual report, which they call their goalkeepers report. And it tends to be this actually largely pretty positive view of the this is the progress we're making. Here are things we're seeing in health innovations and economic justice and things like that. It looked different this year. So Mm. one quote, very simple, but really to the point from the goalkeepers report this year from the Gates Foundation we have been set back about 25 years in 25 weeks. Wow. Now that's that's true across the board, but they bring up a number of points in particular for gender rights and women's rights. Folks might be listening and thinking, okay, well, you mentioned the first, uh, first conference, the UN conference was 1975. So we're talking almost 50 years ago at this point, a little short of 50 years ago, that this the the concept of working on women's rights and and women's access to services and and equity has been a part of the global development conversation for that long and it seems not that we've completely erased the progress that has been made for 50 years or that the pandemic has has done that but it seems like the the progress is way more fragile than we expected and that might be surprising i mean it, it's something that the development field has been focused on for so long why would something like a global pandemic be so devastating to gender-based outcomes and, and improvements for women all over the world? So we wanted to take this question to somebody who has worked in this field for a long time to give us a little bit of a better sense of you know, why this progress has been so fragile, what the history of gender and development has been like uh, in this very specific context and in specific work. So we are so excited today to have the opportunity to speak with Nani Zolmanarni from the organization PECA in Indonesia. We were really excited that Nani agreed to be on the show today. Just for a little bit of history, Nani and I met probably about eight years ago um, when I was in Indonesia for a project looking at health and social accountability. 
And I had the great pleasure of getting to speak with Nani and her colleagues who work with PECA, which we'll hear a little bit more about in a moment, about this incredible work that they're doing. So when we started talking about doing this show on gender rights and women's rights, we knew exactly who we needed to bring on. So Nani, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us today. It's great to have you on. Thank you, Courtney and Danielle. I'm so happy to be here. It's an honor to be invited in this podcast. Oh, excellent. Well, the honor is ours. Um, So I gave a little bit of an introduction to you, but I have not done that just. I am actually going to turn it over to you. Could you tell us a little bit more about who you are and about the work that PECA, your organization, does? Yeah, hello. Uh, I'm Nani Zulmirinarni. I'm a founder and chair of PECA, Women-Headed Family Empowerment uh, in Indonesia. I'm considered myself as Indonesian women activist. Uh, I start my grassroots organizing work around property and women's rights since 1987, so a long time ago. So in 2001, I started an initiative called PECA, Women-Headed Family Empowerment, uh, organizing poor widows, divorced, abandoned women, single women, and women who consider themselves as the head of family. And our main goal is to make women-headed family visible in the system, have equal rights to others, and uh, free from stigma, exclusions, and of course, poverty. So now, now Paka become a women head of family with members with almost 100,000 women in all over Indonesia. That's that's so incredible, Nani. And I knew that this was a large movement, but I don't think I realized how large it was. As you know, the topic of our podcast today is about gender rights and women's rights. And, you know, we became interested in talking about this because women are often seen as, as a marginalized population. They don't have as many rights as men. I think one of the interesting things about PECA is that you're working not only with women, but you're working with women who have maybe even fewer rights than you know, women on average. You're working with people who are the head of their own households in a where they don't always have rights in that position. So can you tell us a little bit about how you decided to work with this group of women in particular and why you think this is so important within that larger umbrella of women's rights? Yeah, uh, it, it started with a personal journey, actually. In the year 2000s, I get divorced. And during that time, Indonesia is in the reformation era, transition from, from long-time dictatorship to more democratic country with some conflicts area emerge. So uh, we just established National Commission on Stop Violence Against Women, or Komnas Perempuan, whose secretary general asked me to help her document the life of widows in conflict and post-conflict area during that time. So during the conflict, usually people only count number of uh, people who die, right, but never count number of women and children live behind with trauma, poverty, etc. In that process, I have several questions to Komnas Perempuan and to myself, actually, after we make documentations and what, what will happen? Is it enough just to document and tell the stories to the world about this, uh, about the women? And at the same time, there is a, a program, huge program in Indonesia called Kecamatan Development Program. This is the biggest development program in Indonesia funded by the World Bank. 
and and also asked me to to deliver their work supporting widows in this uh, conflicts area, particularly in Aceh, with direct cash transfer. So they call it widows project. So I also have questions to this uh, project. How long will government able to support the widows with cash transfers? And what will happen with them if the program ended? Will they survive or it will make their life worse since they were already dependent on the cash transfers before? So and so at the same time as a divorced woman myself, I experienced stigmatizations and, and excluded, rejected, and, and also facing financial challenges. Suddenly I have to raise three children without a stable income. And I can imagine how other single parents, women in conflict and post-conflict in a poor region and who do not have enough skills and access to information or resources in this kind of situation. So because of all these questions and thinking, I decided to take the opportunity of both offering the documentation project and the widows project, but I negotiate to change the framework and paradigm and even change the title of the project, not widows project, but uh, to have to use more empowerment framework. So that's why I propose the title as women headed family empowerment with in Indonesian language, pemberdayaan perempuan kepala keluarga with the abbreviation of PEKA, P-E-K-K-A. And so that's how it started actually and why I decided to work on this issue. That's great. Nani, I don't think I knew any of that background. So thank you so much for sharing that. You you brought up so many points. There's so many things that I think we could ask as a next step. But one of the things you talked about, which I think is really interesting, is that one of the big advocacy pushes that you did was to actually change the name of this program. So I think you know a little bit about our podcast. Daniel and I like to get really wonky with language, but but we also like to understand why it matters. Why do the words we use and the terms we use matter? So I want to throw that question back at you. You talked about this program that had one name that was focused on widows, and you said, no, even the name of the program needs to be broader. It needs to not just be about widows. It needs to be about women-headed households. Can you talk a little bit about either in that example or other examples, why is it that the language we use, especially when it comes to women's rights, matters? Yeah, this is a very great question. In, in Indonesian language, we have one terminology for widows and divorce. So we don't do, we don't differentiate it. So they, it's called as janda, G-A-N-D-A. So culturally, this what has negative stigma. People used to associate janda as not a good woman. People suspicious on what we are doing, why we get divorced or look at us as a pity and unfortunate women. Since the standard for good Indonesian women is married happily with children, regardless what happened in their marriage. On the other hand, our state, our country use household as their unit of analysis and statistics. Culturally, in Indonesia, one household actually can be consist of more than one family. 
for divorced women or widows, it is common that they live with their parents. So they go back to their parents' house when they get divorced or abandoned by their husband. So the phenomenon has caused invisibility of some families, which furthermore will exclude them from government program and resources. And, and their rights as citizens will be violated since they are not exist in the data and they are women-headed family because they are there. So I give you um, just one example. When we had a major earthquake in Lombok, I think four years ago, we have some PAKA members, um, some of the uh, leaders who were devastated, affected by the earthquake, did not get any support because they live in their parents' house due to their divorce. So, and the emergency aid support based on household data. So in that household, actually there are four families one parents, uh, one uh, the, the the parents, right, the family, and then three divorced uh, sisters, like uh, uh, women, the, the daughters of friends with their children. So all total, seven people in that household. But the, the government, the system only give them one package, which for two people, because uh, it's in the data, only one household headed by their parents and their only their husband and wife of this. So this is just very, this is one example, one small example. This happened everywhere. Nani, if I understand you correctly, it seems that the definition of the household that the government had was marginalizing certain people, and specifically the women that you've worked with who are divorced or who, who have been widowed and therefore not getting them the services they need just because of that terminology, the way that they measure things, the way that they were providing yes. that service. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And the other element, for example, most of the women headed family, um, our members, when we start organizing them, they don't have family card. Family card is really important for Indonesia because this is the basis for other uh, legal framework, uh, legal uh, identity, for example, for the ID card and other things. So Around 65% women's uh, marriage in rural area, particularly, do not register. So then the husband can easily leave them uh, just like that, not without any status. So uh, legally, they cannot do anything because they are, their marriage is not registered. Uh, culturally, they are still people still look at them as, as uh, the wife of somebody. So that's why we have many women who the husband has been away now for maybe nine years, six years, migrating to other places, married, married again. Uh, but the women cannot do anything legally because culturally they are recognized as the wife of that man. Well, the man, you know, already have different, different lives. So this makes a poverty in Indonesia. Uh, this women-headed family, almost 90% of women-headed family are the poorest of the poor in Indonesia. Nani, I want to talk a little bit more about this example and 
You've talked about some of the cultural challenges and, and you've also talked about some of the things, especially related to terminology and policies that make things more difficult that, that the government may be doing. One of the things we're really interested in is also the, the development sector, the aid sector. You mentioned an example earlier from the World Bank. Um, you know, there's a lot of you know aid and development work happening in Indonesia. So you know, are there things that you see the development sector doing that might be helping in terms of women's rights? And is there anything you're seeing that you actually think may be a bit of a stumbling block for women's rights? Uh, since PAKA actually uh, word from development, right? So I can broadly say that PAKA one is a of a good a practice and, and transformative development work on gender rights. Uh, although it takes a long time with great support from bilateral aid, it, uh, it's success to make the women and the family visible, both in statistic and development narrative. PAKA is very small, very small compared to huge amount of money that government of Indonesia already secure and used for what they call is women in development or gender and development work. I would like to see it from uh, the approach of development program. Uh, delivers in Indonesia particularly. Uh, always when talking about women and women uh, in development and property, it's always the thinking is always cash deliver and microfinance. So I found this thinking and paradigm is is uh, what you call it is problems. Um, it's not really helping women in Indonesia. The, the biggest challenge we face at the ground is the women do not want to be organized because we don't we don't give money. And because they said, oh, that development program always give us money. So so this kind of you know, quick uh, quick thinking boxes is really uh, just counting how many women came to the meeting or this is really it's not changing, not changing the fundamental thing that we want to achieve through this gender development program, for example. So it's, in fact, it's even trapped women into dependency and cycle of property towards their family because there is no program to really exercise the power relations, gender power relations, and transform that value system into more equality and justice. So the uh, the short project, heat and run type of project, no? and only count the number how many women beneficiaries attending the meeting actually only show result in surface. So, but not really solve the root causes of poverty on women and gender inequality. Nani, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm curious just to ask, so it's, it sounds like what you're implying, Nani, with, with, the, with your response to that question about where at sometimes the development work is not as transformational as it could be when it comes to gender is when it becomes a bit of a box ticking exercise where they count, you know, they essentially have some funds for women, but that they, they sort of are limited to that. They have that particular contribution. They have the particular input. They count how many women showed up, but then they don't go deeper into the root problems or what's hindering women from having full rights. And it sounds to Pekka, you, you've done that. You go further than just the microfinance or just the financial support, but you provide training on skills, you provide advocacy to shift how the conversation and the and the rights of women are taking place in Indonesia. And that's that sort of holistic model 
is what really leads to gender transformative programming. Nani, I'm curious, when you share your vision of what it would mean to achieve equal rights for women-headed households and for women in Indonesia, when you're talking to people outside of Indonesia, so people who are coming in from um, other countries who are providing funding and support and leading programs, do you ever find that you kind of have a disconnect or, or a different definition of what it means to get to equal women's rights in Indonesia than people who aren't as familiar with, with the situation in Indonesia? Uh, I think in, in, in principle, uh, it's uh, the same. It's not so much difference, right? Because we are Indonesian women as women's activists, we also actively involved in the process of developing international framework. For example, we are very active involved in develop Beijing platform for action as the basis of gender equality development framework, right? Context-wise, Indonesia has very specific, has very specific situations, which might not similar to others. For example, in Indonesia, the roles of uh, what I call as hidden and invisible power uh, in our uh, context are very much stronger compared to the visible power. The visible power I address uh, to the government uh, who's using their budget, their policy, their laws, right, to control our life. But the hidden power actually are the institutions, non-formal institutions, maybe religions, indigenous, and social organizations, all these. And then uh, the, the, the mindset, the, the value system which all Indonesian has, no, is really uh, the most the most challenging to be exercised. So, so that in Indonesia, if we work with our work focus on changing the law or policy, it won't change, it won't necessarily change the life of women or it won't achieve gender equality or yeah, changing women's rights. Yeah, because um, it's, it's totally a different way of operating in the whole system. So I give, uh, we have a domestic violence act since more than 10 years ago. This is after long advocacy work of women's rights activists like us. But the domestic violence is still happen and very limited women use this law to bring their husband to the trial and get sentenced. So the belief system and values do not allow women to hold women back to really look at domestic violence as the, the public issues as, uh, you know, uh, we can use this legal framework to do that. Because Indonesian women believe, uh, majority Indonesian women believe that the, uh, the family matters is personal. It's not, no one can, you know, interfere on that. So therefore in Indonesia, we have to work with religions or other system, indigenous, maybe indigenous traditions. We cannot disconnect uh, this value system. Just it does not matter whether you believe or not believe on religion or atheist or you are agnostic. It doesn't matter, but you cannot change anything without engaging this particular uh, system and institution, which rooted very strongly and operate and influence all policy in Indonesia and development. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I think it's I think that's one of those things that sometimes the development field uh faces challenges with that there are these uh as you say kind of invisible power and and the um root causes and issues that can play a really important role in how some of these programs work but that we don't always recognize if we're not Indonesian, if we're not from the place where we're working. So I think that's such an important point. You've been working in this field for a long time now. And I think, you know, in large part because of the work that PECA has done, you've been able to see such huge changes and and advancements, both in terms of, you know, legally and in terms of culturally. If you were to look forward, say, 10 years from now, what would you want to see? What is your vision for women and women-headed households in Indonesia really showing that they are fully empowered and have those equal rights as their male counterparts? What, what would that look like? Yeah, I think so. my biggest dream is really a justice because for a long, for long time, I feel women we don't um, have a just life. So we are very, we are subordinating the whole system from family to the state. So I want to see every woman can can proudly say that they are women and, and equally exercise their rights and and openly so that they are treated equally in this. And and it should start it from family. I think I think there is huge gap. Uh, from development and movement, which talking a micro meso level, but not really going to very uh, fundamental space where women, when the, this inequality started, when this value system is built, yeah, it's it's in the family. So I really, it, it's, it doesn't matter the, uh, you know, how we define family. I think every family have their own. Uh, divinations what this family means for them right so uh, I really want to see everyone can enjoy the the development result because now for example Indonesia you know, considered as you know economic growing right but the, the inequality is really became uh, deeper right so I want to see more equal equal access to resources and um you know people are empowered and and you know i want to see how my grandchildren live in a peaceful and just world so it's it's big world right but i think i think that's that's the, the dream because um now the COVID really opened our eyes that how divide us, how the, the, the gap is really between poor and rich and also between uh, gender. Yeah, absolutely. And then my follow-on question for that, since you know it is a podcast that looks at the aid industry and the development industry, with that vision in mind, what is one thing or two things that you would like to see aid agencies or development organizations or like bilaterals, multilaterals? What's one thing or two things that you would like to see them do to help make progress towards that vision? Yeah, I think so. first, 
not to treat gender equality award as a project which has limited time frame and resources that be measured by ticking the box. Gender equality is a value is value system which roots deeply and can be changed only with lifetime process. So, so the process should be the uh, the measures, right? And 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 to start with uh, the family, where the family the family level. So the development should invest and uh, integrate family as empowerment as strategy to change the root cause. Uh, we might need a generations, but if we do it effectively, it won't be so long, right? Uh, for example, yeah, maybe it takes 15 years or 20 years so, so that we, we have new generations who values this equality as who practice, who build, who create uh, equality and just for gender equality and just as the value system. But because we we use this big, we start from big things, right? The policy, but actually the practice is there is huge gap between policy and practice. So that's why I think we need to really put gender equality as a process. So cannot be a project. So projects only finish project finish, and then we're happy with the report, document, and and then back to square one. A huge thank you to Nani Zulmanarni, founder of PECA, for joining us and sharing her wisdom. Unpacking Development is hosted and produced by Daniel Plout and Courtney Tolmey. Editing and music done by Daniel Plout. Additional drum breaks and sounds by AJ Hall at leftfielddrumbreaks.com. Our beautiful artwork done by Courtney Tolmey. All views and half-baked rants shared by Daniel and Courtney are theirs alone. If you'd like to recommend your own jargon term for unpacking, share your own thoughts, or just get in touch with us, our email is unpackingdevpod at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at unpackingdevpod.